Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Ho. H to the OV. I used to move snowflakes by the OZ. I guess even back then you can call me CEO of the ROC. Ho. Fresh out the frying pan into the fire. I be the music biz number one supplier. Flyer than a piece of paper bearing my name. Got the hottest chick in the game wearing my chain. That's right, Ho. What's good, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the I'm TIS podcast with your host, George Shirley. Jai Shields here on this Tuesday, September 26th, the year 2023. Lots to do, lots to talk about here on this program. Of course, the week three recap of the National Football League is forthcoming. Uh, and we also have, or we have begun the final uh, full week of the 2023 MLB regular season pennant races are heating up in the AL West, the National League wild card. Orioles, uh, just a couple, not even that. I mean, a little about the magic number is three. So you figure, you know, two wins and one temporary loss would lock up the American League East for my uh, beloved Baltimore Orioles. I get into that. Uh, Brooks Robinson, speaking of the Orioles, the great Oriole, Mr. Oriole, as he was known uh, amongst the Orioles franchise. Passed away earlier today at the age of 86. We'll eulogize the great Brooks as the program uh, rolls along. Uh, two college football games. I want to uh, give you my two cents on the Ohio State and uh, Fighting Iris finish on Saturday night up at South Bend. And Colorado taking their uh, ass whooping uh, in Eugene at the hand of the Oregon Ducks. We'll get into that. But where we will begin this show is with the Monday Night Football game last night, and that is my Cincinnati Bengals finally, finally, finally got themselves together and pulled their heads out of their ass and were focused and were disciplined and were motivated and went out there and played with some gumption and uh, found a way to get their first win of the season. Uh, Just an absolutely uh, gutty, gritty, mentally tough, victory from my Baltimore Orioles last night and I listen I give them a ton of credit man the especially the defense let's start with them the Bengals defense last night was absolutely outstanding they sacked Matthew Stafford six times uh forced three forced their two interceptions they did a sensational job at stopping the run uh, the Bengals defense, which was a sieve last week against the Ravens and then we- the week before against uh, Nick Chubb in Cleveland in the rain uh, uh, back in week one. They did a sensational job of stopping the run. The Chargers, the Chargers, the uh, Rams, excuse me, ran the football 13 times for uh, 71 yards on the ground. Uh, did a sensational job of uh, stopping. I mean, the longest run of the night was Tutu Atwell on that uh, jet sweep. They got reversed. Uh, for that would have been a touchdown and early in the first quarter for LA, but they reversed it and the uh, Rams had to settle for three. And I give the Bengals defense a tremendous credit because it could have been, here we go again, you know, offense can't do a damn thing. You know, the Rams are going to, are going to beat us. They're going to dominate us again. We're going to fall to 0-3. The sky is falling. This is a hopeless season. Season's a wash before it even gets started. They get the benefit of the overturn, and I looked like, to me, that Tutu Adwell was out of bounds. His heel, if his heel wasn't directly, and it looked like that that his heel touched down, like he full-on had his entire foot 
on, on the sideline. His heel was hovering over the chalk, but my vantage point of how I saw it was, well, if his heel was hovering over the chalk, the referee's mindset was, well, if his heel is hovering over the chalk, probably the prong or or two or three of his cleat that's that's sitting on the bottom of his foot probably made contact with the uh made contact with the uh with the out of bounds chalk in the in the uh, in the in the turf thus they uh, overturned it and i give the bengal's tremendous credit because they uh because they did a fantastic job of uh, of not letting of of not getting down in the dumps from that and they actually used that as a uh, as a uh, as a momentum builder and DJ Reader went out there and bam put Matthew Stafford right on his ass right from the get go in the aftermath uh, but just a sensational sensational job by uh, by the entire Bengals defense how about Logan Wilson who admits the uh, the the uh, the hubbub and the great uh, celebration and attention for Joe Burrow getting his contract extension uh, the uh, Thursday night prior to the week one game and all the conversation of Joe Burrow getting his contract. Will he get signed? Will he sign this, that, and the third? And then you turn around and, oh, by the way, yeah, Logan Wilson got a contract extension. And games like that last night on Monday Night Football was the uh, was in a, was a superb pinpoint Reason why walked away with two interceptions, uh, four tackles, three of them solo. A sensational night at the office of Logan Wilson. And I thought about this too when I woke out of when I woke up this morning and rolled out of bed thinking about the game last night and said to myself, you know what? It was Logan Wilson probably had a little bit extra incentive of motivation. Because if you guys remember, Logan Wilson was the guy that was covering Cooper Cup on that on that pivotal third down play in the Super Bowl, and he, you know, mano mano man coverage inside the red zone. He had it wasn't holding. He but he, you know, went out there with his right arm, swatted the pass down, and Ron Tolbert and his motley crew uh, and his motley crew of officials decided to to stick their beaks in the game and call it a holding penalty, which was a complete disgrace. One of the worst calls I've ever seen in all of my years of watching the Super Bowl and all of my years of being a fan and watching NFL football. He calls them for holding, and I guarantee you that in the back of Logan Wilson's mind, it was like, yeah, Super Bowl against the Rams. They called a holding. They called a holding. And if you guys remember correctly, Logan Wilson was was had a game of his life. In that game, I mean, it was either pick your. If the Bells would have won that game, it either would have been him, it either would have been him, or it would have been uh, T. Higgins or Jamar Chase to win Super Bowl MVP. Take your pick. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe Logan Wilson had an interception in that game as well. Let me take. Uh, let me take back. Let me go back and look. But in the, but in the meantime. I guarantee you that 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 there there was a uh, a motivating factor for Logan Wilson in the game last night. On top of the fact that the team being going to and a, a do or die game, Monday Night Football at home, Ring of Honor, you know, Ring of Honor night at the Jungle. I guarantee you that probably was in the back of Logan Wilson's mind, saying, "You know what? I gotta find I gotta find a way." He did not get interception in that game. Jesse Bates had one. I remember in the end zone for the touchback, and Chidobe Awuze had one. 
So, uh, so I thought that he had one. He did not a woozy a, and uh, Jesse Bates had the two interceptions off of Stafford in the Super Bowl. But he, another, nevertheless, Logan Wilson had a tremendous football game in the Super Bowl, and it got thrown away essentially with that awful holding call. And I, and I bet that that was in the back of Wilson's mind when he got suited up for the game last night. And what does he do? He shows the Rams and he shows, you know, the, the NFL, the, the Goodell, the, the officials, whoever, and says, listen, I, you're not going to catch me with the, with the, with my hand in the cookie jar this time. You're not going to be, you're not going to screw me over with your piss poor fishing. I'm going to go out there. I'm kick the Rams ass. And it's not a damn thing you guys are going to do about it. And that's exactly what Logan Wilson did. The six sacks, a sensational job. Dax, Hill had a had a tremendous sack on a safety blitz. Uh, Sam Hubbard also got after the quarterback as well. B- DJ Reader, who I mentioned, also uh, all in the first half, come off of the uh, the two two Atwell reversal. Uh, BJ Hill also had a sack in the game. And how about Trey Hendrickson, man? I've been you know th- that's the Trey Hendrickson that I've been waiting for. And you and Trey Hendrickson, especially in the back end of the season for us last year. His health was severely compromised because he played the back half of the season with a broken forearm. His forearm is healed, entire offseason worth the rest. And, you know, he had a very good game against Cleveland in week one. He, he, not, he, uh, he racked up a sack. And he goes out there last night and racks up two for good measure. Uh, you know, one of the more underrated pass rushers in terms of the job that he did for Cincinnati in that 2021 season was, was a very underrated offseason signing us getting him from the Saints in the 2020-2021 offseason sensational game that he's had that he had for us last night we got to have more of those performances man like I've told you guys ad infinitum the uh the difference between the between the teams that win Super Bowls and the teams that lose them is that they have players on the defensive side of the football those either an elite pass rush in terms of a unit or they have that one singular elite pass rusher that can take over a football game. Obviously, Aaron Donald on the on the Los Angeles Rams side, Chris Jones for the Chiefs and their two championships. Uh, you look at the defensive pass rush that the that the uh, that the Bucks had that made Mahomes' life a living hell in the in the uh, Super Bowl in the COVID year. The the Bengals have to have that pass rush, whether it's a can whether it's the entire unit. Uh, with the you know the combination of Reader Hill Hendrickson and uh, Sam Hubbard, or one of those guys has got to step up. And when games are on the line, and when it's pivotal second and longs and third and longs and pivotal third downs that the team has to have, either keep the momentum on their side or to get the defense off the field to put the ball back in Burrow's hands, the defense has got to find a way to make plays. And there was no shortage of big plays that the Bengals secondary produced last night. So you give them tremendous credit. They signed. Puka Nakua, the wide receiver who I told you guys on Friday they could not let under any circumstances take over the game. He had five receptions on seven targets for 72 yards. Damn good job. Lou Anarumo, who, you know, had argue, whose defense arguably p- produced one of their worst performances that I've seen them produce in recent memory. And then he goes out there and bounces back in his same old Lou Anarumo, Lou Dini, as we call him. Uh, in uh, in uh, in the jungle, and he goes out there and he shuts down a Ram offense that, quite frankly, has been one of the more elite offenses in the first three weeks of this very young NFL season. But the Bengals defense did a sensational job. Give them their flowers, and it's ironic that the uh, that the tables 
were turned and that the roles were reversed where it was the Bengals defensive pass rush that was wrecking havoc on the Rams inferior offensive line instead of the former or excuse me instead of the latter which we saw obviously in the Super Bowl and another takeaway I got from this game was if the Bengals defense played the way they played in the Super Bowl last night and throw in the and throw in uh you know if they if the Bengals defense played the way now I understand no Cooper Cup but if the Bengals defense got after Stafford and played the way they played last night uh in the Super Bowl the Bengals would the Bengals would have would have won the whole damn thing and the and uh, now would I have liked them now Matthew Stafford threw two interceptions and it only resulted in three points and it came off of the second one instead of the first one. So I would I would like the Bengals and they've kind of made it they've call, they've kind of fallen into a habit where the defense has been fortunate enough and has been timely enough and clutch enough to force the necessary turnover. Offense gets the ball back even with a short field and they do nothing with it. That's something that this team has got to break because the number one way and the fastest way you can you can lose football games yet win the turnover battle. It is if you force turnovers, the offense gets the ball back and they do nothing with it. Two turnovers and only three points resulting resulting uh, from the two is not a long-term recipe for success. Bengals got to patch that up as the season uh, moves along. And how about Jamar Chase, man? Jamar Chase is still that dude. If you had any concern about Jamar Chase, what happened? Have no fear because he showed up. Matter of fact, I thought that it was a typo when ESPN put up on the screen that he had about not eight or nine catches, however many it was, with a buck twenty-one. I was like, "Is that a? It's like, am I eyes deceiving me? Is that a typo? No way, Jamar Chase has all the has that many catches for over a hundred plus, hundred fifteen plus yards on the game already." And considering the fact that the Bengals really didn't have any big, explosive, you know, deep pass plays like we've been accustomed to seeing uh, in this, uh, you know, since the 2021 season. And, you know, I, I was like, what, really? What? So I went back and I looked in the middle of the game and I went back and looked at the box score and sure enough, Jamar Chase, you know, had had 10 receptions for a buck 21, something along those lines. And he finished with the game, 15 targets, 12 receptions for a buck 40 for a buck 41 receiving. I mean, a sensational, sensational game from Jamar Chase. His first big game that he's had all se- that he's had thus far in the young season. And, you know, you knew the once Chase and Burrow were going to, were you know, that, the rhythm and the timing was, was got down, and it, and they started to get into a rhythm. You knew as long as Burrow stayed upright, and the and he was going to find Jamar Chase in the open field to keep drives alive and to get the chunk plays and to dominate time. You knew that the Bengals were gonna, were going to be in a halfway decent shape. So, and the Bengals got to keep on with that. You know, as the season progresses, they find Jamar. If Jamar Chase is open, they give. If if they aren't giving Jamar Chase, you know, the deep ball, 50, 60, 70 yards downfield, take what they can give you. You know, take take the drag take the drag routes over the middle. Take the uh, take the corner outs on near 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 the uh, near the uh, near and far sideline. 
Jamar Chase is open. You feed him the damn football, and that's what the Bengals did last night. Give the Bengals offensive line uh, credit as well. Did not have a great game, but pretty solid, all things considered. Aaron Donald made one play in the game, and that was a sack, but that was it for, for, for Aaron Donald's standards and compared and contrast to how, now I understand it's a totally different unit than the, than the uh, offensive line that suited up in the Super Bowl, but night and day, you know, for the most. Joe Burrow, two sacks. He got sacked twice. That was it. Uh, and this offensive line, which, you know, amidst the offensive struggles, has not really gotten the praise and the recognition that it deserves for being the beacon of hope and beacon of light and the silver lining of, uh, of the sensational job that the offensive line has done uh, this early, you know, in the season. And they deserve tremendous praise and credit for that. Uh, they've only, Joe Burrow, I believe, has only been sacked five times throughout the first three weeks of the season. And compared to how, how and compared to last season and then compared to 2021, I say that's a huge, Huge, huge step in the right direction. I tell you, I tell you something. I tell you something right now. Had Joe, and I understand it's early, but you can we can only imagine as Bengals fans what our seasons could have ended up like and could have and could have and what could have been had the solid offensive line play that we've seen throughout the first two weeks of the season. If we would have gotten that in the Super Bowl season in 2021, and had we had gotten that last season, especially. In the uh, in the uh, Chiefs game in uh, the AFC Championship back in January, um, and uh, and Zach Taylor has got to be able to run the damn football. You know, I when I Joe Burrow's throwing the football thirty something times, and it's you know second quarter headed towards halftime. That's that's not what I want to see. Like I said, ad infinitum, you do not want to make yourself a one dimensional offense. And I understand that he had time to throw and he had a clean pocket. And the offensive line did a very good job of keeping him clean throughout the duration of the game outside of two sacks that they gave up. But throwing the football 49, 50 times, like I've said all the freaking time, especially with this bad calf, you're setting yourself up for failure. And it's not a long-term recipe for success. Now, I got Joe Mixon involved and he had some, he had some very solid runs throughout the sequence of the game. And he had the and he scored the lone Bengals touchdown in the game in the third quarter. But you gotta feed you gotta feed him more. Nineteen carries, sixty five yards is not enough. Joe Mixon's got Joe Mixon's carries got to be in the twenties. And if he can find a way to you know rush for ninety to you know reach that hundred yard, I understand every every single game he's gonna have that. But in certain matchups and certain games. When the Rams rush off rushing offense at, throughout the first two weeks of the season, heading into this game, was among the worst in the league. You got to give Joe Mixon the ball more than what they did, and, and in the first half, they only gave Joe Mixon the ball four times, which was which was completely completely unacceptable. You got to get Joe Mixon involved more. I mean, you brought him back. He took a pay cut. You brought him back. Burrow's go, the Burrow's cast going to be a thing all year long. You gotta you gotta get him more involved in the offense. And you kinda have to to a certain extent change not your entire identity of the team, but you got but you but in the circumstances of Burl being as being injured and having to play through this injury, you can't have the offense be super reliant on him 
on a week-in, week-out basis, if that makes sense. You got to get and keep Joe Mixon involved in these games because when he because when he's on and the running lanes are there, he can be a damn good, productive running back, uh, not just for the team, but a damn good, productive running back in, uh, in the National Football League. And speaking of uh, Joe Burrow, man, you got to uh, you got to appreciate and you got to uh, sing his praises for his toughness. You know, he said in the post game, he said, "Listen, yes, there was a, yes the, the possibility and the chance what and the risk was there for him to uh, re-injure his calf and you know make it worse and God knows you know and all the sorts of dire things you know that were in the back of his mind." But you know that's the reason why Joe Burrow is who he is. He weighed the pros and cons. He figured, well, the 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 I would much rather you know deal with the risk of injuring my calf again, or making it or injuring my calf and making it you know reaggravating it, making it worse, rather than me rather than my calf being fine. I sit on the bench and we play with fire and we're zero and three and essentially our season goes up in smoke before we're out of the first month of the season. So you know he paraphrasing said among other things. I like the risk more of me re-injuring myself more than more than me taking the. I liked it more than me taking the risk of us going us going potentially going zero and three. Now, if you go now, if he were to go out there and would have given it a go, he would have. God forbid, you know, and he he gets hurt and you lose. Then hey, you can't say that they didn't try, that they didn't give it an effort. But bro, the way he is, how he's wired, the elite competitor that he is. He was not going to if he was able if he was able to go through uh, workouts and was able to walk and do all the basic things without limping and you know without crutches or or you know being chair ridden you knew he was going to suit up you just knew. the Bengals were being coy about it he was he did not you know he warmed up in kind of exclusivity in the tunnel before he finally came out onto the field. Uh, Zach Taylor said, you know, during the weekend, it was going to be a game time decision. You know, they were very coy with it. You know, they had two active quarterbacks on the, uh, on the, uh, on the, on the roster last night. So they were very coy of, in terms of Burrow's availability, but anyone who knows Zach Taylor and has a glimpse of, of, uh, Joe Burrow thus far and his young career as a Cincinnati Bengal, they knew that, that, that unless something catastrophic were to happen between, uh, between you know th- Thursday, Friday up to uh, game time last night, Joe Burrow was going to go out there and give it a go. You have tremendous credit for his toughness, putting his putting his team uh, his team's best interests ahead of his own, and him recognizing also how important and how valuable he is not just to that offense but to that football team. Him being out there on the field, I guarantee you, is part of the reason of why the Bengals' defense played so inspired and played like their hair was on fire last night. They say, "Hey, our quarterback, he isn't feeling a hundred. He is. He isn't feeling his hundred and ten percent true self. But he's out here. He's playing. He wants to win and get this season back on the right tracks and get the first win as much as we do. I guarantee that probably has something to do with it." Uh, as well, and I give uh, Zach Taylor credit. He out coached McVay in this game. You know, Mc, I I say it all the time, and one of my biggest uh, coaching pet peeves in the NFL is when coaches waste their timeouts, use you know a timeout or God forbid two 
uh, early in the third quarter coming out of halftime. You're coming out of halftime. You really, everything should, at least to begin the third quarter, should be set in stone. You shouldn't be sloppy, you know, running players on and off the field, delay, delay against. That shouldn't be an issue. You got to be, at least for the, for the, for, for the first five to seven minutes of the, of the third quarter, your team on both sides of the ball, they got, they got to be buttoned up. And I knew it was going to be a bad, uh, was, the chance of the Bengals win that game, you know, went up in my book about 5% when McVay had to use that timeout early in the third quarter. And he put himself in a situation where he had one timeout and a back end of the fourth quarter. And he put himself in a position where his defense, which outside of letting Chase go crazy and having Mixon have, have a couple of, uh, of uh, chunk runs in the game that you know outside of, but in terms of their score, in terms of scoring defense and keeping the Bengals out of the end zone, the Rams defense did a did a uh, did a solid job last night. All things can all things can in terms of keeping the Rams offense in the game, the Rams defense did a solid job. And I knew that you let, that when they gave the Rams the ball back with a little less than five minutes to go and them being down ten points. I'm like, unless something ca- unless something ridiculous happens, the Bengals are gonna win this game simply because the the Rams don't have any time. Even like they did, they marched down the field, put the ball in the end zone, but they had no timeouts. And you certainly, at least if it was me, I would have liked my chances of me kicking the ball back to Cincinnati, especially because they didn't because they did nothing but sit on the ball in their final offense possession, which was which was not brilliant coaching and not brilliant offense on both Cincinnati accounts by any stretch of circumstances. But they, you know, but you figured saying, you know, you put the ball back to them and you have say, say, tell your defense, hey, you make Joe Burrow throw the ball, you put a little heat on them and see if they can get a first down through the air to uh, to shut the door and win the game. And they didn't have that opportunity because McVay screwed around with his timeouts. He had one timeout to work with, work with which he had to use which he had, which he, you know, he had one timeout. He had to work with the remaining plays of his of the Rams' final offensive drive of the game, and then put him and he backed himself into a corner where he had to kick the onside kick, rather than him kicking the ball off, you know. And since they he gets the ball at their own twenty-five yard line, and they got to get one first down to win the game, you know, with Burrow with a bad leg and knowing that uh, that the Rams are going to stack the box either in preparation to stop the run inside. Or to get after uh, Joe and put some heat on him and make a move on his calf, and he didn't have a chance to do that because McVay screwed around with the timeouts, and uh, and Cincinnati was was a little bit more consistent in terms of their uh, ability to run the football when they knew they had to. So you give uh, Zach Taylor credit, and he had the defense ready to play. But in terms of the first half, man, the Bengals' offense was completely out the lunch. You had skilled position players uh, get caught with the hand in the cookie jar with with uh, false starts, ad infinitum that that absolutely killed uh, that killed some drives for us for a Cincinnati, which was absolutely brutal and unacceptable loser football. I mean, you can honestly make the argument that the Bengals' offense in the first half. Was as was as bad, if not worse, than as it's been all season through the first three weeks of the season. Uh, to begin, the, or excuse me, the first two weeks heading into this game, uh, you can make the argument that it that it was worse in the first half than it was last night. And I, they were very very fortunate to walk into uh, the halftime, to walk in the halftime, walk back into the locker room with the game tied at six. 
very, very, very fortunate, but they got themselves together. They found a way to win. Now the goal is for Cincinnati is to use this game and use this win as a building block. You know, you got Tennessee next week, followed by that. You have Arizona on the road. Use this game and use this win as a building block. There is no excuse. And then you got, and then you have Seattle, and then the bye, and then San Francisco. There's no excuse why this team can't be four and two at the worst, three and three heading into the bye. And and honestly, if you're the Bengals, that's your goal. As long as Bro doesn't have any setbacks, he's upright. You know, there's this this the goal for this football team should still be to win the division, get the number one seed somehow, get home field advantage, and find their way to host the AFC Championship game and get to a Super Bowl. All systems go for Cincinnati, man. There is it's September it's it's September first month of the season, but there's no turning back. There is no reason why they cannot rattle off a four-game win streak by winning these next three games, heading into the bye, and then where we and then we'll see where we stand uh, in Santa Clara when we play San Francisco in the in the uh, middle of October. But listen, uh, you got some revenge against the team that broke your heart. The defense got up, got off the deck. The offense uh, had some uh, looked uh, promising. Uh, a lot of uh, a good portion of the uh, of the second half. I still they are they and the Giants are the only two teams in the sport though without a first half touchdown, which I find very very concerning. And the sooner they fix that and address that, the better off they're going to be as well. Got to do a better job running the football. And what I mean by running the football, I don't mean get the ball to Joe Mixon. He picks up a yard and a half. Or it gets nowhere, and then Zach bails on it, and you know he lets eight plays go by before he gives the ball to Joe Mixon again. No, 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 no. You gotta work him into the game plan. You gotta work him into the game. Give him, uh, you know, the the decent, the uh, appropriate amount of carries for him to get his legs under him, build a rhythm, and have that run set up the play action pass and set up the pass. Because that's part of the reason why the Bengals have a problem with the deep passing game because they throw the football all the time. And they don't run the football enough and well enough for them for opposing defenses to bring the one safety down and and you know and stack the box, leaving Cincinnati with an opportunity to take the deep shots downfield with Boyd, Chase, and Higgins. And speaking of Higgins, man, and he will be better. He had a very very good game against the Ravens last week. He will be better, but uh, the drops that he had in the ball game last night completely unacceptable. But T Higgins. Uh, you can you can bet the farm on this. He he will bounce back against the Tennessee Titans coming up next week. But the Bengals finally get their first win of the season. They believe it or not have a nice little win streak going at home in prime time, which I was not uh, which I was not aware of. Uh, as Zach Taylor said to his team in the uh, in the post game locker room uh, celebration speech, where the Bengals are one and two. They can be two and two in a six-day period if they take they go on the road, take care of business against Tennessee coming up on Sunday. They improved the five hundred here at home. Monday night football. Uh, the Bengals, in recent memory, have have played has played exceptionally well in recent memory on Monday night. So you give them credit for that. We won't see the Bengals on Monday night again until uh, until early December when they go to uh, Duval and play Jacksonville. Um, but they did a gritty win, gutsy win, and the good football teams and the good quarterbacks find a way to win games where the stat sheet and the final score isn't, you know, it doesn't knock your socks off, uh, which I took from this game to be a very, uh, 
positive and in, and uh, encouraging sign. But you got to build on it, though. You go, you drop in, you lay an egg in Tennessee next week. You're right back where you started. So you got to find a way to get the two and two heading into the uh, Arizona game, and then build upon that, and then just keep on stacking and stacking and stacking and stacking and stacking these wins. But give the Cincinnati Bengals tremendous credit for getting off the deck. They improved their season to a one and two record here in twenty here to begin the they, excuse me here to begin their two thousand and twenty three regular season. Now, in terms of the games that uh, took place on Sunday, uh, let me start with the Colts and the Ravens game. And this is why you know I I heard a lot of talk from some people, not from everybody, but I heard a lot of talk about the about the uh, about the Ravens and how they are head and shoulders the best team in the AFC North, and this is their division to run away and hide with, and everything else, you know, and every and 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 everything else, you know, Lamar Jackson. Uh, sensa- you know, sensational player, best quarterback in the division, John Harbaugh. What a great coach! What a job! This is why I and I texted, I texted some people that I heard this from, and I fought back, you know, in, on Twitter, and I said, "Well, hold on now, hold, hold on now." If you know the history of the Ravens in the last better part, really, of the last decade plus, because now we're past the 2012 season when we won the Super Bowl. If you know the Ravens in the last ten years, nothing, nothing to the, for, for them, and and nothing for them ever comes easy. I'm not saying that they that they won't win the division because they very may well win the division. I'm not saying that they. Uh, I'm not saying that they're not a Super Bowl contender because they very well could go to the Super Bowl and could go to the AFC Championship game and hell could walk with number one seed and host for the first time ever in the history of the franchise an AFC Championship game at M&T Bank Stadium. But what I am saying is, is that it's not going to be a runaway. There's, there's been one occasion in the Ravens franchise history where they've ran away and hid with the division and were and you know kicked ass and took names with every team that they came across within the NFL one time one time and that's 2019 and we all know how that season ended for them nothing with the Ravens ever comes easy so even if they win the Super Bowl and finish with a better record in Cincinnati I guarantee you there will be weeks where Ravens fans will be bashing their head up against the wall saying, why in the hell does this team make life for themselves and by that make life hard for me? Why do they make it, make every single season a living hell for themselves? And a case in point is how they played on, uh, was how they played on Sunday. You got an Indianapolis Colts team with no with no Anthony Rich with no Anthony Richardson. It's your second home game in three weeks. You came off of a very good uh, eyebrow raising, impressive victory over the Bengals the week before. You, you know the the Bengals play on. Uh, you know they played the next night. 
Cleveland lost Nick Chubb on uh, Monday night in the Steelers. The Ravens had a prime opportunity to improve to three with a soft uh, schedule to begin the season outside of the Cincinnati game. You had an opportunity. I mean, their first two home games were are, were against the AFC South. I mean, th- that's a layup for crying out loud. And they had a pre- premier opportunity to improve to go to three and one in the AFC. Stay keep pace with Miami, who they're going to play at, in their building on New Year's Eve. Which, depending on how the season goes, could be important in terms of the, determining who gets number one seed. But it's still early in the season, so I won't exercise uh, in that conversation quite yet. But they had an opportunity for them to be three and zero, and for them to be in the in in the driver's seat in the AFC North. And what happens? Typical Ravens. They fought around against an inferior team that they should beat by no less than twenty one points. And they go out there and they fought around and they score out offensively. They do not. They don't do much of anything. They're sloppy with the football. They turn it over left and right. Hardball up to his old tricks with his late game clock management, and they end up losing a winnable game. I mean, somebody has to. Expl- for first off, let me let's get to the before I get the hardball. Let let's break down the Ravens with the fumbles. Okay, they had Kenyon. They had Kenyon Lamar has fumbled. Uh, I believe four times in the first two weeks of the season. He fumbled twice in the win against against Houston in Week One. He fumbled once in the Cincinnati game that would have stood had it not been for the legal hands of the face penalty, which took the ball away from Cincinnati and gave it right back to Baltimore. But, uh, but when it, when, when they broke down the film last week, I guarantee you the illegal hands of the face penalty was irrelevant because Lamar Jackson still put the ball in the football and Cincinnati recovered it. Had not there been no penalty, it would have been a turnover and it, and it would have counted on a stat sheet. And then twice in a game on Sunday afternoon, he fumbled on uh, third and fourth, that he was able to jump on, and he recover and he uh, recovered, so no arm, no foul there. And then he fumbled again, first and ten, with five fifty eight to go in the second quarter, uh, which led Indianapolis recovers, and it led to an Indianapolis, and it led to an Indianapolis uh, field goal in their ensuing uh, drive. On top of that, their rookie center, or not the rookie center, but their backup center, who uh, because they have the uh, their uh, because they have their uh, other center, uh, their starting center, I believe Lindenbaum. Let me double check and make sure that I got his name uh, up here properly. Uh, yeah, Tyler Lindenbaum, their center. He he obviously was out on again. He obviously was out on Sunday. They have their backup in, and he slides the ball across the grass, and it ends up uh, and it ends up uh, going. And that drive ended up going to hell for Baltimore. That was a third and five with two forty one to go in the second quarter when Reigns had the ball there on twenty nine yard line. So between the bot snap, the two Lamar fumbles. Oh yeah, by the way, Kenyon Drake also had a had a uh, had a fumble early in the game as well. Ravens are falling into a habit where they got to be able to protect the damn football. You know, they have put the ball on the ground at least once in the first three weeks of the season. And, you know, you can skate away with your high-end talent till the cows come home. The bottom line is the teams that win football games versus the teams that lose them. The teams that win football games take care of the football. The teams that lose football games fail to take care of the football. And the and if the Ravens don't pull their heads out of their asses and learn to take care of the football, Lamar Jackson, especially when he's in the pocket, he could throw for 41 touchdowns, uh, four interceptions, 
and you know break Mahomes' single season passing yards record. I I don't care if he's Danny Derps behind center in terms of him putting the ball on the ground, dropping it, and and allowing it to get smacked out of his hands every single time he gets pressured by the opposition's uh, pass rush, or when he runs, or when he tucks it and runs it, and he gets stripped by the, these defensive linemen, these linebackers, it's going to spell trouble for Baltimore. It's just all there is to it. You got to be able to take care of the football if you want to be able to win football games. And the offensive line of the Ravens struggled. Lamar Jackson got sacked four times. It was not a great day at the office for them. Offensive line, it's got to be better against an Indianapolis Colts uh, inferior defensive uh, pass, uh, defensive passing attack. Lamar, I mean, he for I mean, he threw the football. Okay, 22-31-202, did not throw an interception, but did not throw a touchdown pass either. He did run for a buckle one on the ground on 14 carries, but... I mean, just uh, the Ravens' offense, I thought, was very, very... I understand it was raining. I understand it was raining, and the weather's been crap, and we haven't seen the sun, you know, since uh, last Wednesday. I get it. But but the Ravens, I mean, I thought they fired Greg Roman. The play calling from Todd Munkin, their coordinator, was very, very, very conservative. And again, this this is not... uh, the Indianapolis Colts circa 1958 with, with with their defense that beat the Giants in the greatest game ever played. Or the 70s uh, defense that uh, that kept the Cowboys offense in check in that low-scoring affair with all those turnovers back in Super Bowl V down at the Orange Bowl. The Ravens offense, very, very, very disappointing performance. And I did not like the idea of Gus Edwards running the football on third and one. They had the, ball, the Ravens had the ball on a 45-yard line with 11 of uh, 50 to go in the third quarter. Mar Jackson's making all that money. Put the ball in, the damn, in his damn hands, okay? And for the life of me, and this is where, as I get to John Harbaugh, this is where I, you know, I cannot put John Harbaugh in the conversation of him being an elite NFL head coach, top five in the sport. I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I can't, I can't do it. Because somebody has to explain to me, in the final two minutes of regulation, Gardner Minshew stepped out of bounds on the safety. The referees initially did not pick it up. They waited until he got sacked in the end zone for them to rule it a safety, which at the time, if I go to the play-by-play sheet, uh, I go to the play-by-play sheet, made it 1916 Baltimore, put him up three. Somebody and so and the referees noticed that the original safety was when Minshew's foot touched in the back of the end zone out of bounds, not when he got tackled in the end zone. So as a result, the safety occurred with two oh three left in regulation, not at one fifty six after the two minute warning. So they put time back on the clock to where Minshew stepped out of bounds, which was at two oh three, and John Harbaugh for some inexplicable reason did not communicate that to his punt team on a free kick. And as a result, on the free kick, Zay Flowers, for some reason, because Harbaugh didn't communicate it properly, which he admitted in the postgame, but he did not say, hey, Zay, 203 remaining, I don't care if you run backwards to the one-yard line. The best thing you can do is to catch the football and just run. Just run, move, don't do anything but fair catch it and stand still because we need that clock to bleed an extra four seconds so we can get into the two minute warning so that it so that it doesn't 
give Indianapolis essentially a, an extra timeout to work with when we begin our in, our ensuing offensive possession. Instead, Zay Flowers fair, fair catches it. The clock doesn't move. Stays at two o three. Uh, instead of instead of him taking a free kick and running it and using up the two minute warning before Lamar Jackson sets foot on the field, instead Fair catches it. Clock doesn't move. Stays stuck at two o three, and then somebody has to explain to me. Okay, it's two o three. The Ravens are up three. Field goal ties the game. They get the ball. Mitchie marches down the field, puts the ball in the end zone. The Colts take the lead. Okay, there's two o three left. Okay. 2.03 left with three seconds to go for the two-minute warning. By the time Lamar Jackson, the, by the time the ball touches Lamar Jackson's hands and he's about to make his decision whether to hand the ball off to keep it for himself or to throw the football, the two-minute warning has already eclipsed. Somebody had to explain to me on first and 10 why in the world the Ravens chose to run the ball. They had brought their own 25-yard line up three. The two-minute warning automatically is going to happen after after that first snap. And so you running the football to try to work the clock means nothing because the clock's going to stop regardless because you have the two-minute warning as soon as the ball is snapped. First and 10, do they throw the ball? You know, they Lamar they pay Lamar Jackson all that money in the offseason. Do they throw do they do they put the ball in his hands and say, here, go hit up a Rashad Bateman or go find Zay Flowers or your safety blanket Mark Andrews? No, what do they do? They run the football on first and ten. When a first down ends the game. First down ends the game. They get they get a first they get a first down. Or or they get or or they get a gain of of seven, a gain of eight. All they need is the first down after two minute warning, and the game is over. Instead, they run the ball on first and ten from their own twenty five yard line. They get they get nowhere. Results in a one yard gain. Two minute warning hits, which is essentially is an is, is a de facto timeout for Indianapolis. Then they run the ball again on second down, get nowhere. Indianapolis takes the timeout. So at this point, there's like still a minute fifty plus left on the clock as the Ravens look look at third down. They ran all but about twenty ten to to fifteen ish seconds off the clock. And already there's and they're sitting at a third and long up three with Indianapolis with an opportunity to get the ball back to either tie the game or take the lead possibly in the game. They run the ball on second down, they get nowhere, and he takes the timeout, and then on third and nine, for some inexplicable, ungodly ridiculous, asinine, egregious reason. They decide to run a jet sweep with Zay Flowers on third and nine, which loses yardage for Baltimore, and they're forced to punt. I mean, you cannot manage a situation where you have, where the team has the lead with under two. You cannot manage that, that uh, drive that was meant to put the game away 
in the final two minutes of regulation any worse than that. That is that is coaching malpractice from Munkin, the offensive coordinator. That is coaching malpractice from John Harbaugh, who's been in the league a long time, who's been a head coach of the Baltimore Ravens since 2008. So 15 years this guy's been at the head of the controls, and still this Muppet has no clue which way is up to, sometimes when it comes to his clock management. I mean, you can't get much much more worse than that. Again, a first down and the game is over. First and 10, they inexplicably run the ball. For what reason, I have no comprehension of. Second and down, second down, they do the same damn thing, get nowhere. Third down, do we put the ball in Lamar Jackson's hands and say, hey, Lamar, you know, find find, uh, Mark Andrews to put the game away. I mean, they did a, I mean, they did a sensation, I mean, in a similar situation in the Bengals game last week, it was a third down, Ravens chose to pass, nobody was open, Bengals didn't have a container, didn't have a spot on Lamar, Lamar rolled out, got the first down, and they needed one more first down to ice the game, but they needed to convert on that third and along nevertheless, and you know what, to pull the ball in Lamar Jackson's hands, and that's in that instance, and he got the job done. This week, and I don't want to hear the rain and any given Sunday and all that garbage. No, if you put the ball in his hand in a similar situation against the Bengals last week, a better team with a better defense on the road, what the hell is stopping you from doing it against the Indianapolis Colts team that stinks uh, starting a backup quarterback at home in your own building? I, 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 I don't understand it. They paid, them, they paid them all that money, highest paid player on the team who plays the most viable, most important position, and added for now, the Ravens have made it their calling card that the ball is in Lamar Jackson's hands 90% of the time. Yet when it needed to be in his hands during that final drive, they go back-to-back uh, run, uh, uh, ace-back run plays right up the middle that go nowhere. And on third and nine, here's a jet sweep with Zay Flowers. Really? Baltimore punts, and Apis gets the ball back, marches down the field, kicks a field goal, ties the game. Ravens get the ball right back, march down, march down the field, Justin Tucker's six one yard field goal comes up short. And then on the Ravens' final offensive possession of the overtime period, they had two drops. Zay Flash with a critical drop on third and six, completely unacceptable. This was with 7.06 to go in overtime at the ball in Indianapolis, 44-yard uh, line. Zay Flowers got to catch it, hits the ball right in your damn hands, find a way to catch the damn football. Gee whiz. And then uh, Isaiah likely can't come up with the catch either on third and three. Uh, on third and three with uh, 3.24 to go in the overtime, drop, ends up dropping the pass. Then on the ensuing play, Zay Flowers gets tackled clear as clear as 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 uh, as, Cari- as, uh, as the Caribbean seawater. Clear defensive pass interference. Zay Flowers gets mauled for some inexplicable reason. They don't call it. Colts get the ball back, drive into field goal range because the Ravens defense, which played their asses off for for a good portion of the football game, is tired, worn out. Colts get in the field goal range. Matt Gay kicks the game winning field goal. Colts win the game. I mean, that, I mean, good Lord. I understand they got screwed with the call 
with uh, with uh, Zay Flash with defensive pass interference, but they shouldn't even been put in that game to begin with anyway if John Harbaugh knew how to coach his way out of a paper bag with his clock management. And I said to myself, watching that game in the second half, I said this would be so on brand for the Ravens if they found a way to lose this football game. And lo and behold, they did. So, uh, and again, don't get it twisted. That doesn't mean the Ravens aren't making the, that doesn't mean that the Ravens are going to miss the playoffs. That doesn't mean the Ravens are going, are not going to win the division because they very well likely, very well likely will do those two things and may end up finishing with a better season uh, than, than the rest of the three teams in AFC North. But if you think that the, that, that, uh, that the two that the Ravens uh, avenue to success in 2023 is going to come easy and is going to come without the Ravens inventing ways to beat themselves. You know what? I got a bridge to sell you, uh, and I got a bridge to sell you in Afghanistan. These these are the Ravens. They 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 invent new ways to beat themselves. Unacceptable, unacceptable. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. As a Bengals fan, I was pulling like hard for Indianapolis like you wouldn't believe. But objectively speaking, that's an unacceptable loss. And and those are the losses where if you're a Raven fan, you know, that goes back with the team, for, you know, that aren't one of these, you know, bandwagon douchebags that hopped on because of Lamar Jackson, those are the losses that you say to yourself saying, a typical John Harbaugh, John, a typical John Harbaugh coached, uh, or typical John Harbaugh induced L. So I mean that it, it can't that 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 cannot have against Indianapolis in your own building. You have got to find a way to win the damn football game. It's just no excuse. No excuse. Uh, you got you got these easy opponents in your own building. You gotta find a way to win the damn game. Have to. Have to. The Chargers escape. Uh, speaking of uh, coaching malpractice, uh, Brandon Staley, and I tweeted it out Sunday, and I'll repeat it again. Brandon Staley has to be one of the dumbest human beings to ever man an NFL, the man in NFL uh, sidelines as a head coach. I mean, because uh, because the amount of of just head scratching, mind boggling, asinine decisions that this guy has made in his tenure as head coach of the Los Angeles Rams. I mean, if I was a Rams fan, I'd have about a million brain aneurysm, a million brain aneurysms at this point, because this, because this is just, just, just pure stupid ass insanity. That this, that this man commits on a, on what it seems like a week in week out basis. Somebody has to explain to me what the hell his logic was Fourth and one, you have to bought your own 24-yard line, a minute 51 to go in the fourth. Why in the hell, when you're up 28-24, are you going for it on fourth and one at your own 24-yard line? Somebody has to explain that to me. Somebody has to explain that to me. Somebody has to has to give me an explanation and give me a rhyme or reason of what the hell was going through Staley's mind when he thought it was a brilliant idea to do that. So somebody now had T.J. Hawkinson been able to catch been able to catch the ball on a first and goal and not have it go off his hands and lead to an interception. 
you know, it, we would we would be screaming 20 times louder than we are already. But Hawkinson drops the pass on first and goal in the final uh, ticking seconds of regulation. Chargers get the interception. They escape. Hold on for their first win of the season. Justin Herbert, man, a sensational game. His best game he's had all season long, or excuse me, on the young season through the first three weeks. 40 of 47, seven incomplete passes, 405 passing yards, averaging 8.6 yards of pass play, three touchdown passes. Uh, and how about Keenan Allen, man? What a wide receiver he is. 18 receptions on 20 targets, 215. And then how about Mike Williams? Eight targets, seven receptions, a buck 21, and a touchdown catch. An absolutely sensational performance from him. And then how about uh, and then how about the uh, wide receiver Josh? Uh, I'm in my feelings like Kiki Palmer, who had the touchdown catch off the uh, deflection of the uh, Vikings secondary member in the end zone uh, in the uh, in the second half that uh, I believe it put the Chargers uh, out in front, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, yes, it did. Up 28-24 uh, with 8.05 to go in the fourth quarter. But the Chargers escaped. They get their first victory of the season. Vikings fall to 0-3. It's, it just goes to show you on the year on year basis how how your luck can change on a dime. All the uh, the one-score games that went the Vikings' way last year are now going in a polar opposite direction. I mean, the, they've, they've lost three consecutive one-score games to begin the season. If that doesn't tell you and show you that the that the uh, that the um, Minnesota Vikings are going to be in for a rough season. I don't know what the hell will. But um but the Vikings fought all in three. Chargers improved the one and two. And then how about the the Miami Dolphins and the Denver Broncos? Now, I'm going to go in a different direction in terms of my reaction to this game because everybody, and rightfully so, don't get me wrong, is singing the praises of Tua Tagovailoa and the Miami Dolphins and Mike McDaniel and the absolutely sensational, remarkable job, job that they've done, throughout the, that this offense has done throughout the first two weeks of the season. But I'll go on a different route with this and that the and that is the Denver Broncos and their performance and in particular Sean Payton downright absolute disgraceful and I told you guys back in the month of August that Sean Payton has done a whole lot of talking and has done a whole lot of bumping of his gums for a head coach to let's be fair does not get talked about and does not get criticized as one of the more overrated coaches that had you know that's had a good career but underachieved with a solid Hall of Fame level caliber of, of a quarterback. You know, people talk, and me included, you know, rip Mike McCarthy to shreds when he had, you know, we ripped him to shreds in the many disappointments. We ripped them in 2014 when they blew that uh, lead in a championship game to Seattle. Uh, we destroyed in 2000, uh, in 2016, of course, losing the championship game to Atlanta. We, we've, we've, we've killed Mike McCarthy, you know, many a times. And, and I'm trying to remember who they lost in 2015 when, uh, when they let Larry Fitzgerald go crazy in a playoff game in 2015. I mean, we've killed Mike McCarthy ad infinitum and rightfully so. But Adam Finitum for the fact that he was there all of those years with Aaron Rodgers as his quarterback up in Green Bay and only got to and he only got the one Super Bowl. 
he won it, but only got to and won one Super Bowl with one of the 21st century's greatest quarterbacks of all time, not named Peyton Manning and Tom Brady, and now in recent memory, Patrick Mahomes. We, we've destroyed him all the time. And I said back in August, and I say it again, of how this is a coach, Sean Payton, from 2006 to 2020, he had Drew Brees as a starting quarterback and only found a way to one Super Bowl. He won it to his credit, but only found found his way to one Super Bowl. One. And uh, and unlike, you know, in the AFC with uh with with Cower and then Tomlin with Big Ben, he didn't have to beat their heads against the wall going up against uh, Tom Brady and the and the Patriots and Peyton Manning's Colts and Denver Broncos teams. So he, he played in the NFC that did not have a repeat uh, NFC champion until 2000, until 2013 and 14 with the Seattle Seahawks. Okay, every single year, 2006, it was the Bears. They lost and they lost an NFC Championship game to seven, 2007 was the Giants. Eight, it was the Cardinals. Nine, the Saints. So they've had a different NFC champ. The closest outside of Seahawks that they had of the same team from the NFC making a Super Bowl in a short year period was the 07 Giants and the, and the 2011 Giants. Outside of them and the 13-14 Seahawks, th- th- that's it. The and the because for the most part the the NFC has been you know has has been has been or was ex, uh, wide open uh, in terms of dominance uh, during Sean Payton's tenure in New Orleans with the Saints and uh, and you know many a times and many a year he's had many of playoff failure with Drew Brees as a starting quarterback and he does not get criticized. Uh, by the media and by the masses in terms of the NFL fan for for whatever the reason. He doesn't. And you can look at chapter and verse many a times where he, where Drew Brees and him and his Saints teams got outclassed, got outcoached, and lost and lost playoff games. You can think about 2011. They lost the they lost the road playoff game to uh, to Alex Smith and uh, the 49ers. Where Vernon Davis had that touchdown catch in the closing seconds of regulation in that game. Who can forget the Beast Quake game where they were defending NFC champions? Went on the road and got ran out of the building by Marshawn Lynch. 2000, and then of course they had the bad seasons in 2000. You know, in, in the early 2010s with the Bounty Gate suspensions, they were rebuilding and the whole nine yards. And then of course 2000, and uh, you know they lost the they lost the I believe they lost to the uh, the Seahawks during their 2014 or if not if not 14, then the th- one of those two years they lost on the road to uh, Seattle during their Super Bowl run. Then, of course, who can forget 2019, losing a, chance, losing, uh, a wild card game in their own building by Kirk Cousins and the Vikings, of all people. The year before, or excuse me, the two years prior, the Minneapolis Miracle losing to uh, Case Keenum on the road, blowing that lead late in the game with uh, Marcus Williams putting on a preemptive hit stick on Stephon Diggs instead of batting the ball down or, or letting Stephon Diggs catch the football and tackling him in bounds. And of course, 2018 championship game 
Yes, they got hosed with the bat with the bad no call, but then again they gotta find a way to recover from that and they allowed Jared Goff to go ape shit and the Rams to walk into the Superdome and win that championship game on the road in their own building. So Sean Payton now. Sean Payton, who considers himself, you know, Bill Parcell 2.0, allowed his defense to get destroyed, embarrassed, and completely shown up by the Miami Dolphins offense, allowing 70 points to get dropped on their heads. To a tag of a lower through for 390 yards, four touchdown passes. Okay. Uh, 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 Ami, uh, how you pronounce his name? I, Antone, whatever, however the hell you pronounce his name, ran for 203 rushing yards, two touchdowns on 18 carries. Tyree Kill caught 11 passes on 11, caught, excuse me, nine passes on 11 targets for 157 yards to caught a touchdown pass. And uh, Robbie Anderson, who's catching passes from Mike White, caught a touchdown pass. Raheem Mostert caught a touchdown pass. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I, however you pronounce his damn name, he, the running back, he caught two touchdown passes out of the backfield. You take a look at the numbers that the, uh, take a look at the numbers that the Miami Dolphins produced in the game on Sunday afternoon. Devon Aniche, whatever his name is, and Raheem Mostert are the are the second pair of teammates in the 104-year history of the National Football League to score four touchdowns from scrimmage in the same game alongside when Priest Holmes and Derek Baylock did it, a part of the 0-4 Chiefs. Aniche also is the first rookie in NFL history that have two rushing touchdowns and two receiving touchdowns in the same game. The Dolphins scoring 70 points and recording 700, 726 yards of total offense became the second team ever to record 700 plus yards of total offense joining the Rams and they recorded 735 yards of total offense in their game in late September of 1951. The Dolphins are the fourth team ever, including the playoffs, with 70 plus points in a game and the first team to do it since the then-named Washington Redskins did it when they dropped 72 on the heads of the New York Giants back in November of 1966. This is Sean Payton now, a guy that has gone eons since his last championship, who has gone winless in many of NFC championship games uh, and, and, and championship game settings since that on since that '09 season. A guy that thinks he's Bill Parcells, Mister Tough Guy. That you know that's rugged and, and rough around the edges, and kind of you know enjoys being the, the playing that bad cop personality. You know that's not afraid to be the you know to be the asshole in the room. Well, if you want to be the asshole in the room, you got to be able to, to produce to produce respectable results. And losing by fifty. Allowing the Miami Dolphins offense to drop 70 on your defense's heads is the antithesis of respect and the antithesis of what Sean Payton carries himself and and projects his football team to be to the masses. And then he has the temerity, the audacity, and the unmitigated gall to get into a pissing match with the reporter after the game. Hey, Sean, shut up, take your damn L, watch the damn film till you're blue in the face, and find a way to make sure that your football team does not get embarrassed I mean, these are professional athletes. These are not college kids. These, this is not Pop Warner. This is not 
varsity Friday Night Lights football, these professional athletes, and they got blown out by 50 in a professional game that counts, where in which they, in which they earn a paycheck for. And they lost by 50 points, and their defense gave up 70 points. And the Dolphins took their first stringers out, put their backups in, and they still and the and the Broncos defense still couldn't find a way to stop them. And I gotta hear Sean Payton now. Again, many of playoff losses to the likes of Matt Hasselback, Alex Smith, uh, Kirk Cousins, Jared Goff, Case Keenum. I mean. They, they are, he, his teams have not exactly lost playoff games to Tom Brady, uh, Peyton Manning, Johnny Unitas, uh, uh, Bart Starr, uh, Roger Staubach, uh, 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 Dan Marino. I mean, come on. He hasn't. Ex- he his resume hasn't exactly consist of losing playoff games to quarterbacks that are. Going to go that whose career is going to end up enshrined in Canton. Let's be fair. Kirk Cousins, Case Keenum, Matt Hasselbeck, Alex Smith. I mean, you must, you must be kidding me. And these are on the road and at home. And who can forget in 2020, the COVID year, his team did nothing but kick the piss out of Tom Brady and the Bucks in the regular season. They came into the building. I understand no fans in the COVID during the pandemic, but they kicked their ass in the regular season. They beat the piss out of them when they came to the Superdome in week one. And then Tom Brady and the Bucks came into the building divisional weekend and they had no answers for him. Jared Cook fumbles the football, turns to shift the momentum of the game. Whole, it's ridiculous. And this is Sean Payton now. Sean Payton. I, I was seven years old last time Sean Seams has gotten to a Super Bowl. Seven. I'll be 22 next spring. Enough. Enough. He had, he had Drew Brees for years. 2006 to 2020, you do the math. And he got the one Super Bowl in his life. One lousy freaking Super Bowl. Speaking of a joke and a disgrace, how about the Jets? I mean, if there's any inclination that Zach Wilson has zero business being in a National Football League, I mean, what more do you need to see if you're the Jets? And I don't know who Robert Sala is trying to fool. I don't know how. I don't know whose ass he's trying to blow smoke up. You know, to try to to try to create this figment of his imagination that Zach Wilson is not the problem, that Zach Wilson is a is a is a quarterback that can win the Jets football games, but he's but he's gotta cut the bull jive and stop lying to the media, lying to the fan base, and comp- and, and, and creating these erroneous fabrications that somehow, some way Zach Wilson is a competent quarterback that deserves the to, to, to be to have one of the Rare jobs there is in all professional sports, and that's one of 32, and that's being a starting quarterback of a National Football League franchise because he downright absolutely stinks. He he is awful. He is pathetic. He is horrendous at the position. He has no feel behind center. He has no pocket presence. His ice, his... uh. 
the way he processes defense defenses is horrendous his footwork and his and his and his his footwork in in and outside of the pocket is absolutely horrendous he has no vision when it comes to making pass plays down the field he is awful he is Jamarcus Russell he went 18 to 36 a buck 57 passing yards got sacked three times one of which he sacked himself on a third and seven with eight minutes ago in the first quarter this guy absolutely stinks and cannot play the position I don't know what more he he needs to see, and especially Joe Douglas, the idiot GM that kept them there. I don't know what what more you guys need to see. I I, I honestly, honestly, really don't. I I, I I I I don't get it. I mean, so I'm gonna get this straight. You go out there and you give up draft capital to get Aaron Rodgers, Hall of Fame quarterback, four time MVP, the whole, Super Bowl champion, whole enchilada. You give up draft capital to bring in Aaron Rodgers, who was the replacement. For Zach Wilson. Yet for some inexplicable reason. During the off season. That is from. From February. All the way up through training camp. In late August. You had from February. You had six months. Six months to figure out. What the hell was was your plan. With Zach Wilson. And should he stay. Should he go. And what your plan was. And your time. And the, and the time was there. And available for you to. T- for you guys to construct the plan on who your backup quarterback was going to be. Because you knew good and damn well if it was Aaron Rod- if Aaron Rodgers, you know, one play, he's out for the season, and you're right back at square one with Zach Wilson. And for whatever the reason, Joe Douglas, you know, who was a part of the uh the Howie Roseman uh aunt, you know espionage he, he, that somehow didn't didn't compute in his brain when he's getting up draft capital. And he's basically trying to construct the 2015 Green Bay Packers on his team. Somehow, some way, it didn't click in his brain. Oh, yeah, by the way, Zach Wilson, you got to find a way to get himself the hell up out of here. If you can't find anybody to trade for him, you cut him outright. But for you guys to, to give up and sacrifice draft capital to bring Aaron Rodgers in just to keep Zach Wilson on the roster is asinine. It is, it, it, it's, it's practicing freaking insanity is what it is. Practicing insanity. And again, uh, this horrendous offense, and don't get me wrong, he's not the lone reason why the Jets stink because the offensive line is, is downright, absolutely atrocious, offensive, and pure D garbage, but he, he's awful. He's awful. He could have the hogs, he could have the hogs be his offensive line. He'd still be trash. He's trash. And I don't know what more the Jets need to see before they convince themselves that he's not that good, that he's not good, that he is useless as the starting quarterback of the New York Jets. Case closed. I mean, they they go ahead and they waste a Pat Smith field goal. I mean, they the Jets had negative one total yard through the first quarter. Negative one. Total yards. Negative one. As a team, they had 12 first downs. They were 2 of 14 on third downs. They had 171 total yards of offense. All the Patriots did, you saw, they stacked the box. They, they, They 
made it perfectly clear that they were not going to let Brees Hall, who had a fumble in the game, they weren't going to let Brees Hall and Dalvin Cook run all over their defense to take over the game. And Belichick dared Zach Wilson to beat him because he knew that he couldn't. And he stinks. And somehow Joe Douglas somehow forgot that. And he went out there and he paid a pretty penny to get a new refrigerator. And yet he somehow forgot to stop by the dump and get rid of the old piece of junk refrigerator that's, you know, that, that he's been complaining, that he and the other people in his family has been complaining about for the last year and a half. I don't get it. I truly, truly, truly do not get it. And the defense is overrated too. 85 bears my ass. I mean, Quentin Williams set the pass and had Carter uh, the second with a prime opportunity to get a to get an easy interception. It hits off his hands uh, on third and sixteen at the beginning of the second quarter. And if he ha- and if he catches that ball, you know the Jets have the ball in uh, prime field in their own in their own uh, at their own side of fifty. But they have solid field position, and who knows? It's a spark that that, that lights something underneath the Jets' offense. Then, of course, uh, Sauce dropped the pick six in the the Cowboy game last week. Defense is overrated. It is. It's talented, has guys on there that can play, but but they didn't make a big play throughout the game. I mean, you take a look at Mac Jones. uh, No interceptions. He didn't force a a fumble. He didn't sack Mac. They made nothing. They they gave up a very... They had a very... uh, uh, a very um, non-encouraging uh, 15-point performance the defense did. The Patriots scored 15 points, but, I mean, the way that the Jets, you know, made life easy for them in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, missing out on turnover opportunities, not getting after Mac Jones, you would have swore that, you know, you turned the 5-1 and a one around and the, and the Patriots dropped 51 points. Wide receivers in the open, open in the open field. I mean, a mess, a complete mess. And you know, same old Jets for yet another year. You know, you want to prove to the you want to prove to the rest of the football world, prove the Belichick and the Patriots who you hate so much, prove that you that that, that times are different, and that your franchise is better for the good by beating the Patriots. And yet again, yet, yet again, yet again, yet again, the Jets came up short and failed to do so. Story of their existence. That, that is all there is to every story of their existence. Every single time. Story of their freaking existence. Spe- speaking of story of their freaking existence. How about the Dallas Cowboys? And their loss on Sunday is the main reason why when I hear people on television, whether it be prognosticators or former players that are that are uh, analysts on television, it drives me nuts when I when I hear the Dallas Cowboy hype train. I mean, honest to God, it really, really does. Because and I said it on the show and I say it again, what the Dallas Cowboys do in September means nothing. 
absolutely nothing if they come up small and they and they and they fail to deliver in January. And 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 before we even get to January, the Dallas Cowboys on a year on year out basis give show you signs through games from September to December of what is to come once playoff time rolls around in the aforementioned month of January and games like the one that they had against Arizona. I mean, that that's foreshadowing of Dallas Cowboy playoff football. If I've ever seen it, I mean, there, first of all, the red zone offense stinks and it was, it was overlooked and it was not talked about as much because of the, because of how well their defense and their, their defense has played throughout the first two weeks of the season leading into this Arizona game, you know, forcing a turnover, forcing the turnovers, scoring on defense, you know, the block field goal and taking it, you know, and the, of course the run back on a block field goal in the giant game in week one. So not a lot of, you know, so not a lot of people were really talking about the uh, Cowboys red zone struggles. But I mean, you take a look at how they've done, uh, how they've performed uh, in the in the red zone this season. I mean, you take a look uh, at their, uh, at their red zone, Offense of how of how they uh, fared so far this season. You take a look at how they were, uh, how they fared in the red zone against the Jets in Week Two. In the red zone, their red zone efficiency was two of six. Two of six. Their goal to goal efficiency in the Jet game was two was two for five. Two of two for six in the red zone Week Two against the Jets. You take a look at their red zone statistics in the Giant game in Week One. Okay, you take a look two weeks ago in the Giants, their forty to nothing uh, shutout victory. The the Dallas Cowboys in the red zone were not were not as were not as terrible. They were three or four, two or three, and go to go efficiency, but they were not good in the red zone last week against the Jets, and it reared its ugly head again against Arizona on a Sunday afternoon. The Dallas Cowboys inside the red zone were inexplicably were inexplicably bad. They were in the red zone five times. They executed only once. They were 0 of 2 in go to go in the go to go situations and they were 1 for 5 in the red zone. They committed 13 penalties for 107 yards. And in the first half alone they had 10 penalties for 72 yards. That, my friends, is a recipe for a quick exit in the month of January. Like I said, the Dallas Cowboys foreshadow their, ending, their endings of their season with games like this during the regular season from September to December. And how they play and the great games that they have from September and December, they matter at, but at the same time, they don't. Not in the big picture. Because at the end of the day, the Dallas Cowboys report card will gets determined. Gets determined. Their season gets determined. Their season begins. Their evaluation of how you look at and grade their season begins their first playoff game of the, of, uh, of, of the season. That first playoff game in the month of January, whether it's on the road or at Jerry's World, that's that's where you evaluate the Dallas Cowboys season, how they perform in the playoffs, because for the last you know decade plus they've been a decently solid regular season team, 
But when you're the Dallas Cowboys and all the noise that you makes, the fan base makes, the owner makes, being a good regular season team is not good enough. Because all because all you are to me is a more glamorous, more expensive version of the Marvin Lewis Cincinnati Bengals teams that were very good from September to December and they folded like a cheap tent come playoff time in the month of January. Because that because to me that's all I see. The the, Mar- the Marvin Lewis coach Bengals teams outside the fact that, that they're more glamorous, they play in a they play in a in a nicer stadium with uh, they play in a nicer stadium with uh, you know with uh, with more with more uh, iconic uniforms and a different conference with 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 about two three more playoff wins. Outside of that, they're one and the same. And performances like on like on Sunday is why people is whether you want to call me a Dallas Cowboy hater, whatever you want to call it, is why the people that don't drink Dallas Cowboy Kool Aid say. This is why this team isn't going to go anywhere because of game because of games like that. I mean, they had a 61-yard holding penalty that negated Turbin's uh, return in the middle of the third quarter, which at the time you thought would be a decently uh, agonize, a decently agonize, a decent um, or I should say a substantial uh, momentum killer at that moment in time. Just awful. I mean, they, they. I mean, the Cowboys' opening drive. They had a false start and delay game penalties and back-to-back games. I mean, somebody, somebody's got to got to answer for that. Mike McCarthy, you're the head coach. It begins and ends with you. And somebody, for the life of me, has to explain who the hell Dak Prescott was throwing to on that road zone interception in the fourth quarter. I mean, it, it, just triple coverage, not a cowboy in sight, and he force feeds it because reasons. And yet I got to hear all the people talking about people slander Dak and Dak doesn't deserve disrespect and Dak is a good quarterback and Dak Prescott this and Dak Prescott that and he's better than people, bullcrap, better than people give him credit for, top 10 quarterback, my ass. 25 of 42, 49, one, t- one lousy touchdown pass and interception, that's a, that is a, 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 a underwhelming night at the office for the, for a quarterback that's making the that's making the money as if you know he's of the likes of the of the of the Joe Burrow and uh, Lamar Jacksons and J- and Jalen Hurts's of the world, and I don't think it takes a genius to t- to to tell you and show you that he, obviously he is not, but an embarrassing typical Dallas Cowboy loss, and finally I will end with this, you know. I, I've had enough. It's been, it's been, it was a week of speculation and then it was a week of confirmation and I, and, and I'm at my wits end. I've had enough. I, I, I am so freaking sick and tired of the, of the Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift nonsense. Okay. I, I, I could care less if they're dating. I could care less where they go after the game. I don't need to see them walking out of the tunnel at Arrowhead after the game. I don't need to see them cruising in downtown Kansas City in a convert in a convertible for for Sunday dinner. I, I'm not interested. I don't need to see Taylor Swift uh, jump up and down, screaming at the top of the lungs in the suite. I could care freaking less about Taylor freaking Swift. It is enough. I've been beaten over the head with Taylor Swift all year long. I'm not interested on that mid-artist. I, I, people say, the Swifties can come after me. Bring them the hell on. 
Uh, bring them the hell on, okay? I ain't scared of them. Bernie, you, be- you better talk to these people. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. You better talk, you better talk to them, Bernie, because I, I, I listen, I ain't scared of no damn Swifties. I've had enough. I've had enough. I am not interested in her. I'm not interested in who she's dating. I could care less about a dopey tour. She's made a lot of money, sold out stadiums and arenas left and right. God bless her, but I, quite frankly, could give a damn. I, I could care less. It's enough. I don't care about I don't care about him and Travis her and Kat, her and Travis going out. I, I you know the 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 their different um astrology signs. I am not interested. I could care less. I'm there. I want to watch football. Oh, I want to watch football. I don't care about dopey uh, about about that 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 that, that the, the Swifty fan. I am not interested. Had enough. And 90,000 times putting the camera on Taylor Swift and the sweet at Arrowhead next to Here's her and Kelsey's mom. And here's Kelsey looking up as he looking up at T. Swift. Oh, here's him shooting his shot on his podcast. Oh, my God almighty. Enough. Enough. I, 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 it's been two weeks. I can't take it anymore. I can't, I, I can't because, because I know I'm going to be sitting there New Year's Eve when, when the Bengals go to Arrowhead and, there's, and they're going to be putting the camera on her 90,000 times New Year's Eve and the Bengals going to need the game. And I'll be in a cranky mood because I can't stand New Year's again with anyway. And Tony Rose is going to be, is going to be raking on my last nerve because he won't be able to shut the hell up about Mahomes and, 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 and Kelsey and here's Taylor Swift. I, it's, it's going to drive me freaking crazy. It's going to drive me insane. I I I'm I can't stomach it. I can't. All this talk about a woman that's reputed to be beautiful. Oh my God in heaven! Shut up! Stop it! People so invested in, in in her private life and who she's hanging out with and who she's dating. Guys, do yourself a favor, okay? Enough. Stop going to Taylor Swift concerts. Log log off the. The only time you need to be on the internet is on your Indeed website or uh, on your LinkedIn, and go and find yourself a job. Get a job. Get a job and get one fast. Fill out a job application and be a productive member of society. Instead of documenting Taylor Swift's every breath, because quite frankly, outside of you Swifty, uh, Swifty obsessed nerds out there, nobody, and I mean nobody, gives a damn. Nobody. It is enough of, of the Taylor Swift. I can't take it. Her and Travis. I, 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 I can't take it. The speculation, you know, are they going? No. Stop. Stop. I don't care. I, I I don't care if I don't care if Taylor Swift's going out with 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 the ghost of Dr. King. I am not interested. And the same thing if she was going out with with uh, with with Burrow or Evan McPherson, I'd say the same thing. I care about the football. What they do in their private life is their business. I could care less. What I care about is what they do on the field on Sundays and Monday nights and Thursday nights and occasionally on Saturdays. That's all I care about. 
Because if you want to, because if you want to open up the Pandora's box of comparing girlfriends and comparing, you know, professional athletes, uh, current and and uh, and, 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 and and former lovers, if you want to open up that Pandora's box, I will be very happy to 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 meet your request. Because quite frankly, money aside, Taylor Swift doesn't hold a candle to who to who Travis Kelsey was currently uh, uh, getting jiggy with. And I'll leave it at that. Final week of the baseball regular season. Astros get swept by the Kansas City Royals. I mean, this is a team in the Houston Astros, man. I have, I might quite frankly have never seen a defending champion that has fallen, that has been competitive yet has fallen on their face the the next season in the ways that the Houston Astros have. I mean, they have come, they are playing themselves not only out of winning the division, they are playing themselves almost out of the American League playoffs. Uh, at this at this rate, they hold the third and final wild card spot, uh, and they're above uh, and they're ahead of uh, Seattle by a game and a half. They've lost seven out of the last ten games that got swept by the last place Kansas City Royals, having lost the series to them in in Kansas City the week before, having also lost the series to the last place and gotten swept by the last place. Uh, Oakland A's and then throwing in between losing two out of three in a heartbreaking fashion to my Baltimore Orioles, uh, the uh, sandwiched in there last week as well. And again, I mentioned on Friday and I say it again here that they have been a bad uh, team at home throughout the regular season. And in order for you to win, in order for you to be a championship uh uh, high-end caliber baseball team is that you got to find a way to win games at home, and the and the can and the Houston Astros for whatever the reason have just not been able to get into that groove at Minute Maid Park the way that they have in seasons past. One of the strangest seasons I've seen from a defending champion, and not just baseball but no professional sports in quite some time. But they're a game and a half out, uh, or excuse me, a game and a half a game and a half up on Seattle. Uh, in the American League wild card, in terms of where they stand in the divisional race, there are two and a half games uh, back of the Rangers. Their elimination number is down to four behind the Rangers. The uh, Astros begin their second game of their series against uh, against Seattle uh, later tonight. They have Javier on the mound going up against uh, Kirby for uh, Seattle. They uh, won the game 5-1 last night. Verlander pitched, uh, was uh, vintage Justin Verlander in his start uh, last night. He went six innings of of uh, eight strikeout, albeit gave up eight hits on five. Gave up five runs on a hit six uh, inning uh, worth of baseball. Put it together a very uh, or excuse me, I'm reading the wrong stat line. I apologize. He went that was um uh, that was Castillo that the stat line of of which I gave you. I apologize. Uh, Justin Verlander rather he his stat line obviously much better. Uh, eight innings of three hit one run baseball. He though also struck out eight. Did walk a batter, a sensational night. The office for him. Uh, Jordan Alvarez, of course, hit the uh, hit his thirtieth home run of the season in the third inning uh, off of uh, Castillo. And Kyle Tucker hit his 29th homer later on in the sixth inning. 
which uh, which was a part of the uh, Astros five run effort throughout the sequence of the game yesterday. They put together a five one victory over Seattle last night. They currently Seattle or excuse me Houston the rest of the way. If you look at their schedule, they the rest of the way have these two games against the Manners on the road that they have to have. Uh, and then from there, they go. To, they have an off day Thursday, and then they got three against the Diamondbacks in Phoenix to close out the regular season coming up this weekend. They have five game. They have five games remaining in their regular season with an opportunity still to win a division. Two and a half games back, they got five games remaining. Two and a half games back, and they currently are a game hold that game and a half lead over Seattle in terms of the uh, stack ups, or excuse me, the stand within the American League wildcard. Speaking of the Texas Rangers, they have a series uh, this week against the LA. They have a series this week against the LA Angels. They took care of business against them last night with the final score of 5-1 as well. Uh, they got a, they have the, uh, let's take a look at where the Rangers stand with their schedule to close out the season. They have this series against the angels and then they go to Seattle to play the aforementioned manners. They have two and a half game lead. Uh, it's definitely easier schedule than the Astros do. And that of the, uh, and that of the Seattle manners, obviously. So they, after they've, you know, they had a September from hell and then they got them get their sea legs under them for a little bit. They've won six out of the last ten games. Currently, riding a sixteen win streak, and it has not come at a better. It has it has not came, or excuse me, it has come at a uh, at a fant- It has came at a absolutely fantastic time for uh, Texas, as they you know are a couple wins away from uh, their magic number to win in the West. I believe is at uh, four games as they are within a few wins and an Astro uh, loss mixed in from locking up the American League West when it looked like uh, that their chances of, let alone making the playoffs, were in, uh, were in a uh, dire, dire situation. Uh, the uh, Cincinnati Reds had an epic, epic, epic collapse as their season is right now currently uh, is now right now currently on life support. They are two and a half games back of the Cubs for the sixth seed in the uh, National League wild card. They had a nine nothing lead against the, against the Pittsburgh Pirates on uh, Saturday night, and they somehow, some way, inexplicably allowed the Pirates to not only get back in the game but tie the game, take the lead, and end up losing the game. I mean, the Cincinnati Reds, who were on fire and were the team of America in the month of in late June into the month of July, have you know cooled off from August on and have just been a completely different baseball team uh, for the better part of the last two months. And they looks like the ways the way things stand right now is that they will have another October where they will. Uh, outside because they made the playoffs obviously in the 2020 COVID year where they lost to the uh, Atlanta Braves but in terms of your 162 games, 6 month regular standard MLB regular season another October will go by without the Cincinnati Reds playing uh, playoff baseball Uh, the Orioles AL East Magic number is down to 3 uh, they did an excellent job taking care of business. Got nervous a little bit. The, the game on Friday night against the Guardians was it was a gut wrenching, heartbreaking loss. 
they battle back. They find a way. Aaron Hicks uh, take gives them a one-run lead with a, a two-out double. All for uh, Yenyer Cano to give the game right back, and the Guardians walked off the Orioles to uh, take the first two games of the series last Friday night, and the New Yorkers do an excellent job of bouncing back. An absolutely sensational outing from John Means on uh, Saturday night. I'll read um, his uh, stat lines so we can give him his flowers. They won the game 2-1 Saturday night just for a refresher. John Means, who had a no-no going, uh, who had a no-no going all the way up until the uh, seventh inning, did an absolutely sensational job. Went seven and a third with uh, one hit given up, and that was the assault, and that was the uh, solo home run. Uh, and struck out four, walked the batter. Sensational job by him. His best start since he's been back off the IL. Uh, Yenier Cano did a good job uh, in the uh, did a good job in the uh, eighth inning to get the final two outs in the eighth. And uh, Cnel Perez had a uh, f- had a flawless ninth inning, in which you know, and Cano and Perez, you know, coming into that game where John Means was cruising and had a relatively low pitch count. You know, I was not, ex- you know, and if you follow me on Twitter and I was sweeping up a storm during the game, I was not in love with those decisions, but they found a way to, to uh, muscle through it and get through it. And Cano and Perez did a good job slamming the door on Saturday night in the 2-1 uh, victory to go, what, I believe 89, if not 90 consecutive series uh, without being swept. Uh, and then, uh, the, and then Sunday against Cleveland, they go out there and they say, "Hey, we're not losing. We're f- the final road game of the regular season. You know, we're ending it on a high note." They get the split. They cut their magic number down to. Uh, they cut their magic number down to three. And now they're in a position where two losses and a raise and a, a two wins and a raise loss gets them the AM, gets them the AL East division, and they. Could have the and they are setting themselves up in a position where they can have the division locked up and the number one seed locked up by uh, by Friday. And before we get in, well, let me do. Well, let's since we're on the topic of the Orioles, uh, let's go with let's uh, eulogize uh, Brooks Robinson first. Uh, Brooks Robinson, uh, Orioles, a great third baseman back in the uh, '60s. And uh, back in the 60s and early 70s, um, uh, passed away today at the age of uh, 86. Spent 23 seasons with the Orioles, tied with Carl Yastrzemski, who also had 23 with the rival Red Sox, for the most seasons spent with the team in MLB history. Won 16 gold gloves at third base more than any other uh, position player in the history of the sport. Uh, if you read uh, his, uh, his, stat li- his stat line, uh, here right quick as I pull it up on uh, baseball, excuse me, baseball reference. This is a guy born May 18th, same birthday as my maternal grandmother, uh, 1937 out of Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, third baseman, bat, batted right through right-handed, obviously. He was a career 267 hitter, hit 268 home runs uh, with uh, 2,848 hits. Made his debut on uh, September 17th, 1955 at 18 years of age against the uh, Washington Nationals. Ironic As ironic as that is because the Orioles are playing the uh, Nationals today and tomorrow. Uh, he went two for four with an RBI in his Major League debut. 
uh, got inducted into the Hall of Fame the same. Uh, he got inducted into the Hall of Fame forty years ago, the same year, same uh, summer. The Orioles uh, ended up winning the whole enchilada back in nineteen uh, back in nineteen eighty three. Of course, the nickname for him, the human vacuum cleaner, uh, Mr. Oriole, as he's known here in Baltimore. He uh, won the won the uh, MVP, American League MVP in 1964, 18-time All-Star back when All-Star, uh, back when the All-Star uh, nomination meant something. Two-time World Series champion in 66 in 1970. Of course, we can forget the famous photo of him jumping into the arms of uh, Dave McNally at the end of the 66 series at Memorial uh, at Memorial Stadium. 16-time Gold Glover, as we discussed. Uh, World Series MVP, of course, in 1970 when he put on absolutely defensive clinic against the uh, Big Red Machine and the Cincinnati Reds back in 19. Uh, back in 1970, his entire career, obviously with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, look at his postseason numbers. He uh, as a he as a career postseason hitter hit a he was a career 303 postseason hitter with on base percentage of 323, slugged 472 OPS of of uh, 785. He hit. Uh, five postseason home runs and 22 postseason RBIs. Uh, his best postseason series performance he had he hit um uh let me see let me see let me see because I because it has the game by game I don't want game by game I would like um his batting log for the entire series if I can get that um. Standing by, but you get the idea. Um, obviously inducted into the uh, Orioles Ring of Honor, Orioles Hall of Fame. His number is retired, number five, retired here, uh, here in Baltimore. And here in Baltimore, um, you look at his numbers. He the best he hit was uh, three oh. The best he hit was three oh three in nineteen sixty two. Finished with twenty three home runs, eighty six RBIs. The year in which he won the MVP, he had twenty eight home runs. Uh, career best 118 RBIs, RBIs, excuse me, hit 317. So I apologize. That actually was best uh, year in terms of his batting average in 1964. Hit 317 with 368 OPS, 521 slugging, and an OPS of 889 was absolutely sensational uh, that year. In the uh, championship seasons in 68, he was a 269 hitter, 23 home runs, 100 RBIs. Uh, on base percentage of uh, 333 slugging 444 OPS of 776 uh he had a slugging of uh 429 OPS of uh 764 on base percentage of 335 slug for or excuse me hit for 276 uh, 18 home runs 94 RBIs in a championship season in 1970 he retired at the end of the uh, 77 season. He was not very good, 149 average. Uh, only played in uh, 24 games in 1977. Played one six. He played 163 in 70. Excuse me, in 61, 162 in 62, 161 in 63, 163 in 64, 144, 65, 157 in 1966. 158 games in 67, 162 and 68, 156, 158, 156, 
53, 55, 53. So he had a nice stretch where he played well over 150 plus games throughout his career. He was an, I mean, he, I mean, his first season as an Oriole was in 1955, and his final season was in 1977. I mean, th- I mean, think about that for him. I mean, this guy played for the Orioles from the time he was 18 years old till he was 40, from the mid-50s through the late 70s. I mean, that is absolutely unbelievable stuff. I mean, from every person around the Orioles, uh, that ha- whether a fan, a broadcaster, uh, you know, covered him in the media, whether it covered Brooks as a player or, uh, or was fortunate enough to spend time with him because he hung around the uh, team a lot after his... Uh, after his retire after his uh, retirement, but um, everyone says how and and speaks to how great of a guy he was and how much of a absolute gem of a human being he was to interact with. How he you know the the, the how how much of a just a pure gem of a human being he was. Um, and it's a shame that uh, you know that he's uh, that he's no longer. That he is uh, no longer with us. He is a uh, was a tremendous baseball player, obviously, and an even uh, and an even greater person, which you uh, love to hear. Uh, but uh, thoughts and prayers to obviously his family, uh, his family. But he obviously was a, a one of a kind a human being, a fantastic baseball player, and certainly, I mean, you think of the concrete the the concrete original great Orioles I mean obviously you think you know you think of Cal Ripken for you know those that grew up in the 80s and the 90s but in terms of the early great Baltimore Orioles and one of the franchise's uh corner first original cornerstones obviously Jim Palmer is number one but Brooks Robinson is right there with them uh at number two so uh he Tremendous player and even great, greater uh, human being. Uh, thoughts and prayers to his family and rest in peace to the great uh, Brooks uh, Robinson. Passes away at the age of 86 today here on Tuesday. And finally, I would be remiss if I did not take the time and say that it was indeed Elimination Day for the New York Yankees within the last uh, within the last few days, the New York Yankees are finished out now. Obviously, it's, it was now made official, but obviously out of the uh, of the postseason contention for the year 2023. Why Aaron Boone and Cashman are still employed, I have absolutely no idea. But hey, the writing was on the wall. The team's not very good. The team is old. The team is one dimensional. It's top heavy. It's Judge and Garrett Cole and it's everybody else and until the Yankees you know hit the full reset button and truly flush the negative uh the, the negative problems and the issues with the franchise down the toilet you know they're, they're going to run into the same problems especially when it's Cashman and Boone still going to shots but I would be remiss if I did not take the time and uh you know throw some barrels to the sky with the fact that the New York Yankees will not be a part of of the uh, six of the uh, six team uh, 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 combination or the six team uh, collection of uh, teams from the junior circuit that will be competing for a uh, World Series 
uh, champion within uh, come uh, a week from uh, today, actually. Uh, a week from today will be the beginning of the 2023 uh, postseason. So you have that. That's where you stand in terms of the uh, in terms of the baseball. Uh, now, finally, we end with the college football uh, and uh, I in Colorado State and uh, and the uh, excuse me, Colorado and uh, Colorado and uh, Oregon. Here's what I got to say, you know, and I said this, you know, heading into the and uh, in, heading into Colorado's game against Colorado State a couple weekends ago and it applies here. You know, the the bravado, the trash talk, the the supreme confident border, you know, that that depending on the player can cross the line and cross the bridge and be an air, you know, that is a double edged sword. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a double edged sword. And I said it heading into the uh into the Colorado State game, and I, you know, and the same applies here. You know, it's great, it's fine, it's fantastic that the that the Colorado team plays with that edge that they feel like they they that they are better than you, that they're the best uh, guys on the field, and they're going and they're going to move heaven and earth to prove to you why they think and why they know that they are that they are better players and are a better team than you. But the problem is, is when is that when you vocalize that and you communicate that as loud and as and with so much bravado as they do, whether it's amongst their own social media pages or when the or when the opposing teams you know turn on the television, ESPN, FS1, and everywhere you look is Colorado this, Colorado that. You know, first take, undisputed, Sports Center, Pat McAfee, here's College Game Day. Oh, by the way, here's Fox with their big noon Saturday pre everywhere you look, it's it's Colorado getting getting praised and getting, you know, uh, more attention than than you can shake a stick at. And not to say that there's anything wrong with that or that I have a problem with it because I don't, but it works as a but it works as a double edged sword. I mean, you would be a fool to think that uh, to think that teams wouldn't see that and would and would turn it into motivation for themselves to say, okay, we'll show this team, we'll end all the hype and all the nonsense, we'll go out there and we'll kick their ass, and then we'll be you know out there with our handout, wanting our praise and our recognition in return. And that's what the Oregon Ducks did. They're a better team in Colorado State, and they went out there and they proved it. And like I said, hey, you know, and like I've said, you know. Colorado, one of their Achilles' heels is that um, is that they've had pro- is that they've had problems defense is that they've had problems defensively. You know, their their defense cannot can can is is going to cost them against against the sports high flying offenses. And the game on a sun and on the game on Saturday afternoon was no different. And listen, you, and again, it's no condemnation. They're not you know they're not there yet. But uh, but you know, and if you would and if you thought that Colorado was going to be, you know, a team that's going to contend, now I said they had an opportunity to. I mean, crazier things have happened. But if you thought that Colorado was was right there from the get go, a top five, top four team in the National Football League, you know, you were you're sadly mistaken. But you know, forty two to six beatdown. 
I mean, they had Bo Nix, 28-33, through three touchdowns, 276, the one interception. Irving ran for uh, 50, or excuse me, ran for 89 yards on the ground on 10 carries. And uh, Franklin, their uh, star wide receiver, eight receptions, a buck 26, two touchdown, cat, two touchdown receptions. Colorado couldn't get much done offensively. Shador Sanders had a bad night at the office. They missed uh, Travis Hunter uh, badly, especially in the passing game. But hey, it happens. You take your, you take your lumps, take your slice of humble pie, and then you look you do some reflection, you do some self evaluation, you brush off your shoulders, and you get right back up from the mat and get ready to fight again. So, which is which is exactly what Dion's Colorado team is going to do this week with the big time, big time, big time game against USC coming up this weekend. And in terms of Oregon, listen. They can talk all the crap they want, you know. It is Oregon, you know. When was the last time they won a national championship? I mean, let's be fair. You know, when's the last time Oregon went out there and uh and 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 established themselves as a team to be uh as a team to be taken seriously amongst the uh, college football landscape, which which is a whole nother conversation for a whole nother different story. And I could open up the Pandora's box with the uh, vir- with the uh, virtue signaling and the uh, and the cold talk with that one with that one tweet that I saw, uh, you know Colorado speaking for all of the all of us and all that I I could go down that route in term and me spending forty five minutes ripping her to shreds and breaking that down and 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 going into into depths of the racial undertones with that, but I don't want the show to be five hours long. I dig- I will digress and have that be a, a separate conversation for a uh, for a separate podcast, separate episode. But and then for the Oregon coach to get up there and say, well, we're we're into win you know, we're there to get the wins. They're there to get the clicks. Meanwhile this guy, you know, made it made sure that the ESPN cameras were going to be in the locker room so he could give that fiery rah-rah pregame speech. I mean, if that ain't the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what is. So, I mean, boy, I mean, a, lot, a lot of, I tell you, a lot of these college teams and these college coaches, they, they, they got to check the, their hypocrisy and their jealousy at the door. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's gotten absolutely out of control. And then how about the end of the Oregon, that, of the Ohio State and a fighting Irish game on uh, on uh, Saturday night. I mean, how in the world does the does does the Irish head coach allow his defense not once but twice take the field in a goal to goal situation with the game on the line with only ten men on the field? I mean that. I mean, talk about the theme in terms of football. The theme of the show being coaching malpractice. If that isn't coaching malpractice, I don't know what the, I don't know what the hell is. I mean, back-to-back plays, you allow your defense to take the field with with ten men on the field. I mean, if that that is horrendous, inexcusable, piss poor coaching. I mean, and he's done a good job. Don't get me wrong, thus far this season. But that, the good lord, that that is horrendous. They allowed Henderson to run rampant all over the all over their uh, defense. Fourteen carries for a buck of four and a touchdown uh, on the afternoon. And they had uh, you you uh, you Gigba uh, on catch seven balls on eleven targets for ninety six yards. Um, they did a good job of uh, quieting down uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. 
But I, I could not believe it. They had ten men on the field, and you saw on the defensive alignment they had they had they stacked the box, but ninety percent, but eighty percent of their linebackers and their defensive linemen that they had uh, that they had uh, stacked up on the line of scrimmage were all on the right hand side of the football. There was about two, three Irish Irish defenders on the left hand side, and the uh, and the uh, Ohio and Ohio State took it took advantage of that and said, "Okay, you're going to stack the box, but you're going to have all of your men essentially on the right side of the line of scrimmage. We're going to run the football the opposite direction, find a crease, you know, gets you know, have our guys push ourselves in a little bit, and that's how they ended up uh, with the uh, with the game winning uh, with the uh, game winning with uh, the game winning score. But a tremendous, exciting, thrilling football game." Uh, Tranium, uh, sensational job with him, you know, finding that, finding that avenue of space on the, uh, on the left-hand side of the football and ran it in for the game-winning touchdown to win the game 17-14, uh, 17-14 Notre Dame. Their clock management, by the way, was absolutely, uh, completely horrendous, uh, in turn, and their offensive drive, uh, leading up to, Ohio State getting their last crack at it and not punishing Ohio State for Ryan Day running a jet sweep on on fourth and inches. I mean, oh my, I mean, goodness gracious. You can't get more horrendous with your play calling than that if you're Ryan Day. Uh, a jet sweep on fourth and inches, I mean, you got to be kidding me. Irish, the, uh, the Irish don't take, the Irish get the ball back. They don't take advantage of it. They don't put the dagger uh, through Ohio State, they get the ball right back. And they march down the field and put the ball in the end zone to win the game. Uh, so, hot. So, as the Buckeyes win the game, seventeen fourteen, remain undefeated and give the Fighting Irish their first loss of the two thousand and twenty three campaign. Well, I believe we t- we discussed it and we touched it all from college football to the NFL to a little bit of baseball. We uh, we covered it all and we touched all four bases. And that is another episode of the Amatella Cotillia's podcast in the books. If you like what you heard and are new to the program, please don't hesitate to subscribe. Follow your boy on Twitter and Instagram at the J Shield and threads, by the way, at the J Shield. I will have the one and only Mike Babchick on the program on Friday's episode. So stay tuned and look forward to that. Catch me on the uh, Wednesday night tailgate coming up on uh, Wednesday night. But until then, it's your boy Jai Shields. Y'all be blessed. Stay safe. Take care. Talk to you Friday. See you.